Good morning, everyone. In her prelude this morning, Bethany played a song that has a line in it that uh, goes like this. Oh, he rescues the sons of men. Uh, Oh, may we be rescued today by his word. Because today we're going to talk about worldliness, which is uh, the third enemy that we face. The Satan, the flesh, and now the world. So all of those who tremble at the word of God will find power to be rescued from this enemy that we're going to look at today, which is called the world. So now the scripture uh, that we're going to sit under and tremble at is uh, in 1 John chapter 2, and I notice it's also in your bulletin as an affirmation of faith after, after, the, after the sermon. So you don't have to necessarily look it up in the Bible because it's in the bulletin already. But you may want to use your own Bible because sometimes there may be things there you want to note or underline. So it's 1 John 2, 15 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And then the particular text uh, that we're looking at today is verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. May God speak through his servant today and through his word. So brothers and sisters, this is now the third Sunday in a row that we're together. What a privilege for Kay and I to be with you. Just sheer privilege. But so good to see Pastor Bird is here again and slowly regaining his strength. And and next Sunday is going to stand before you and continue to be your pastor. We have enemies. We have three great enemies who are out to destroy our souls. And each Sunday my concern has been, first of all, to help us see how powerful that enemy is and the damage that enemy can do. And then help us see how we are so richly equipped to overcome that enemy and the delight that comes our way if we do. So damage delight. So we looked at our first enemy, Goliath, who represents Satan. We saw the damage he did. He just paralyzed the army of the living God. Paralyzed them. They were stymied. They were stalemated. And then God provided a deliverer in only a boy named David. And look what happened. The same army that had been so stymied surged forward in victory, unintimidated by the enemy that had kept them pinned down. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the life that we are meant to live in Christ as more than conquerors? That 
is a great encouragement because Satan has lost his power because Christ destroyed his power at the cross. Then last Sunday, we looked at our second enemy, the flesh, which refers to those sinful lusts that can just rise up from within us. And we saw the damage that our flesh can do. It not only leads us into sin, but it, as we learned from my friend J.J. Monroe, it, it prompts us to love our being led into sin, which is where we get hooked, we get addicted. We love, when you not only sin, we love our sinning. That trip to the refrigerator at 10 o'clock at night with that big bowl of ice cream, oh, we love it. We know it's deadly for us, but we love it. And that's what hooks us. But once again, God has provided deliverance. In great grace, he, he poured his spirit, who created the whole universe, took chaos and made it into cosmos. He put that spirit deep in our spirit. He took out the old heart and put in a new heart, took out the stone and put in flesh. And he gave us a power inside of us that could hate our love for our sin. And that's what saves us. That's what rescues us. And so if we set our minds on listening to that spirit, that powerful voice that says, this is going to kill you. This love is going to kill you. This love of whatever it is, vindictiveness or anger or rage or greed or gluttony or whatever, this is going to kill you. Then if we hear that voice and respond, we're set free. And oh, what a delight it is. What a delight it is. So the gift of David, of Christ in David, put the army of God on the winning side against Satan. We can surge forward. And the gift of Christ, his spirit planted in us, puts us on the winning side against the flesh, our second great enemy. And again, we can surge forward. But there's one enemy left, and that is the world. The love of the world. What is this? I mean, what's wrong with the world? God created the world, but John is not talking about the earth. He's talking about the world. He's talking about a creature who believes that he can find his fulfillment in creation rather than the creator. That somehow I, a creature, can find my life in somewhere else in this creation rather than in the one who gave life to it all and who gives me life, my creator, whose name is blessed forever. That's worldliness. That's worldliness. So I want us, first of all, look at, the same, look at it the same way, the damage that worldliness can cause and then the delight that can come our way if we know how to win against the world. So first of all, what is the misery that will surely come our way if we've fallen in love with this world? If we pursue all that the world offers us, what will be the misery that will surely be ours? 
So John tells us in the first part of our text today, verse 17, and that's where where we're going to enter this passage, the world and its desires pass away. That's what it's going to cost us if we love the world. It will pass away. Now that is a terrible thing. These are the words we use when someone dies. They passed away. They're not there anymore. They vanished. They're gone. Early this morning, I went for a a walk with my good friend, Ron Polander, whose wife, Colleen, passed away on June 30. Ron's been gone on a trip for a month. He came home this week, and he said, it was hard walking in the front door of my empty house. It struck me again. She's gone. What emptiness. What pain. Gone. Now this is what John is laboring to communicate here, that if you love the world, you're in for an experience like that. It will pass away. The world and your desire for it, it will all pass away. Now I'd like to coin a a phrase for that experience. And I must say, I, I... I didn't coin it. I, I got the coin from somebody else. <laughs> I got it from Ray Stedman. I'll never forget it. He, he said, we should call this destination sickness. Destination sickness. And I can't begin to describe how terrible this is. It's a sickness unto death. It's an awful experience, and yet people suffer from it all the time if they love the world or anything in the world. Destination sickness is this. It is setting your heart on something in the world, working yourself so hard to achieve it, and then discovering, sometimes fairly soon, sometimes only later, that this thing or this achievement brought you, though it brought you so much pleasure, didn't satisfy you. It lost its luster and you lost your interest in it. It pleased, but it didn't satisfy. Something passed away. This is so common for people of all ages. When our son Kent was three years old, he had his heart set on something in the world. He loved it. It was called a big wheel. (laughs) It had a great big wheel in the front of it, like a little trike. And he tore around on our driveway in his little big wheel. And his heart was so happy for about a month. (laughs) And then the big wheel got a crack in the big wheel. And it got a little lopsided. It was bumpy when he rode it. The big wheel began to pass away. And Kent's interest in it began to pass away. And pretty soon, it cluttered our garage. This is a parable of what adults do. I remember my first car. It was a VW 57. Beetle, bug, oh, I loved it. But then the front end went out. 700 bucks later, I didn't love it quite so much. (laughs) Then it got rust. And my friend Dale Cooper bought a 59 Chevy convertible 
that was a lot sharper than my olive drab gray <laughs> VW. And something passed away. I was so thrilled with my v VW for a while. Then it became a kind of liability. I didn't even want to take a girl on a date in it. <laughs> I remember when we bought our first sailboat. Oh, I love that boat. We took it out in Bellingham Bay here and we enjoyed it so much. It was a beautiful thing to cut the engine and let the wind catch those sails. And I remember one Monday morning out on the bay, only I and a couple freighters were out there and sailing along with the wind carrying that boat. It was so sweet for a while. But they say the happiest days in the owner of a boat are the day he buys it and the day he, the day he sells it. It was again a kind of taste of what we call destination sickness. You have your eyes set on it. This is it now. And you enjoy it for a while, and then somehow it loses its luster. A couple weeks ago, I got a phone call from my, my friend um, who's in his 80s now. Um, and he is very smart, very smart. He's made a lot of money investing in gold. So he's rich. And he has a place in Puerto Vallarta. Do I say that right? In Mexico. He goes there every winter. He called me and I talked to him for a while and I could tell that Puerto Vallarta was not quite as wonderful as it was two years ago when he bought his condo there. And his family is not so happy. And his health is not doing so well. And he's lonely. And I thought... How sad that the creature looked for something in creation to satisfy his soul. And for a while it pleased him, but it didn't satisfy. And now he's lonely. That's hell. <clears throat> I heard what it was like in the Dallas Cowboys locker room the week after they won the Super Bowl. The celebrations were over. And somebody was there and said it was so quiet in that locker room. There was a kind of now what? A kind of ennui, a kind of languor, even a spirit of weariness, a flatness of spirit. That's destination sickness. Chuck Colson, in his uh, in one of his latest books called The Good Life. Oh, that's a terrific book, friends. Uh, he tells about people in the community where, you know, he passed away last summer. We lost a wonderful man there, but he, uh, he lived in South Florida, I think it was, in a retirement community. And he said, a lot of people I know here are retired executives from uh, the Northeast, and they come down here and they, yeah, they do what they've always dreamed of doing. You know, they bought a place on the golf course, and oh, this is the life. But he said, I ran into one of them uh, six months after he had been there, and he was complaining. His complaint was, do I have to play golf every day? <laughs> now, some of us who work 
our skin to the bones can hardly imagine such a complaint. But it happens. That is the damage of worldliness. That's the cost. It's living in a kind of hell. It's real hell. And the best thing that you can say to a person who's been worldly all their life is what Abraham said to the rich man in hell. What did he say? Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, that's it. That's all. That's everything. That's all there is for a worldly person. You had your fine dining. You had your wine. You had your leisure. You had your boat. You had your status. You were the envy of the people around you. Now, that's, that's it. You had it. And now you're in agony. This happens all through our lives as long as we, whenever we love the world or anything in the world. We experience this agony again and again. And how do most people fight this sickness? You know what they do? When they get sick of something, like their car, they trade it in and get a new one. And they go through another whole round of destination sickness. They buy a nicer house. They move to a better location. They switch spouses. They're addicted to worldliness. They just keep changing the set. And the the experience recurs again and again and again. This reminds us so much of what St. Augustine said after his long search for fullness and joy. He said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So that's the misery of loving the world and everything in the world. Now, all of us, I think, have areas of worldliness in our life where we have not yet reached destination sickness, but mark my word, it will come. It will come. Now, the question is, how does God deliver us from this subtle, persistent, pervasive pressure to find your life in something, you know, religious people can have it too. They can have it in religious status or knowledge of scripture or degrees or how their church is doing. I mean, pastors can be as worldly as anyone else. So how, how does God deliver us from this pursuit, this terrible pursuit that leaves our spirits so famished now, Christians have struggled here. Um, you know, uh, thoughtful Christians have, have said, we've got to step away. We've got to put distance between ourselves and the culture. And this explains the rise of the monastic movement. People became monks. They became nuns. They sequestered themselves. They carved out a, a religious life apart from that infectious world of business and culture and sports and they thought perhaps here we can be safe and yet 
And yet worldliness is so persistent, it can infect even the monastery. If we remember our history, there were Christians who launched themselves on crusades, grand, glorious, holy crusades for some noble purpose. And perhaps today, if I may just say this, sometimes Christians will even go on mission trips uh, to kind of find something more in life than, than this emptiness that they're experiencing in their fairly affluent world. There's, there's got to be something more. Even rich people sometimes, uh, you'll notice this, they, they turn to philanthropy. A Bill Gates will set up a foundation to, to try to do some good for some people. He's made his billions. And you kind of sense that even then that doesn't satisfy. And so maybe this is the way. And the denomination that I'm part of, the CRC, in its own clumsy way, this is almost humorous, <laughs> back in the 20s, decided that there were three things that were truly worldly. And if we stayed away from them, maybe we'd be, we would be protected. That would be uh, going to movies, dancing, and playing cards. <laughs> Face cards, you know, with queens and kings and stuff. <laughs> well, they, were, what they, were, they knew that movies weren't always healthy, and, and dancing could lead to early intimacy, and cards, people often put money on it, and these were not good things for God's people, and they were on to something, but that is so shallow when we understand what worldliness really is. How do we ever escape this Powerful, powerful temptation. This powerful force. Well, again, we go to our text. And it's interesting what John says here at the second half of verse 17. Having described uh, destination sickness, the world and its desires pass away. You know, it reminds you of Ecclesiastes 12, that the, toward the end of the life, it says that desire fades no, no longer have any interest in these things. He says, here's the cure. The man who does the will of God lives forever. Oh, now we have to unpack that. We, we have to ponder that. We, so, of course, the question is, what, what, is the, what is that? What is the will of God? What is it to do the will of God so that we would live forever? Um, well, now we need the help of other passages in Scripture to, to understand this, okay? So I'm going to ask you to turn to John 6, uh, 28 and 29. John 6, 28 and 29. Uh, where Jesus was asked uh, this question, what must, we, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And... Uh, that was the question. What must we do to do the work that God would require of us? And Jesus has a very interesting answer. He says, he, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
Oh, I, I thought maybe there was some work out there we had. No, no. This is the work. To believe in the one he has sent. Now, we, we would hear that and we would say, I think we've done that, haven't we? I mean, I believed when I was a child. So what's next? Oh, not so fast, not so fast. What is this? Believing in the one he has sent. Believing in Jesus. We go to the early part of John, early gospel of John, where he describes believing as this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Believing is receiving Jesus into our hearts. Worldliness is receiving something in the world into my heart. Ah, Kent received his big wheel into his heart. And I received my VW into my, oh, I loved it with my heart. And I received that sailboat into my heart. Yes, I did. And it never satisfied. You can receive a promotion into your heart. It will not long-term satisfy. This is the will of the Father that you would receive the life of Jesus into your heart. This would be your life. He is our life. We did that last Sunday when we had communion. We just received the life of Jesus into us. We drank him in. We ate him in. It's like when you're really thirsty, having a fresh glass of cool, crisp water on rocks. It's drinking him in. He is my life. It is taking in zoe, which is the word that John uses for eternal life. Because the, the great lie of worldliness is that this is the life. Drink your bud. This is the life. Sit on the 50-yard line of the Huskies football game. This is the life. And Jesus said, no, this is the will of the Father. This is how you obey the will of God. Take me in. Let me be your life. I am your life. I am everything you need. So Jesus himself experienced this at his baptism when he came out of the water, the dove descended on him. The voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Oh, what a moment. He had done nothing. He had achieved nothing. He hadn't yet faced Satan. He certainly hadn't gone to the cross. And yet he was full. He was full of the life of God. This is the will of God to believe in the one he has sent, to receive him and let him be our life. This is why Paul says that we are saved by his life. We are justified by his death. We're saved by his life. 
And this is the beginning of living forever. It's receiving an inner fullness of life that I can never lose so that it, oh, this is so sweet. I'm so full of the life of Christ that it doesn't matter if I don't get the pay raise or the promotion or win the award because in here I have all I need to be truly satisfied. I am living in the love and affection of my maker. And I wonder if there's any greater joy that is possible than for the creature to know that it's loved by its creator. We are, uh, Kay and our babysitting a dog this week. And uh, his name is Cooper. I think he's named after a former chaplain of Calvin College, but <laughs> don't tell him. <laughs> Cooper is a little dog. He's a multi-poo. He is as cute as a button. But he's a creature. And we're the masters. Kay and I are the masters. Not very good masters and not a very obedient creature, but we make the best of it. <laughs> he has a little rope that I like to throw, and then he fetches it, and he comes back, he gets it, and he brings it back, and he drops it at my feet. And uh, so I, I say, good boy, Cooper, good boy. And he wags his tail. He takes so much delight in the fact that his master is pleased with him, because he brought that little rope back to me. Of course, that's a religion of good works. He has to earn it. But here is Jesus in his baptism who has done nothing. And his father says to him, you are beautiful, my son. I am pleased with you. I love you. Listen to him, people. There will be nothing better than when we stand before him and we just simply hear the word of our father, well done, good and faithful servant. This divine accolade that falls upon us fills our hearts like nothing else in the world. And this is what happens when we receive the life of Christ into us. We receive this fullness of the presence of Jesus in us that enables us finally to feel that we're beloved by our Father, we're cared for all the days of our life, Everything is okay. Everything is all right. No matter what's wrong. This is a wonderful thing. And when I have that inner fullness in me, I have everything I need. The deepest part of me is satisfied. And so, in a sense, I begin to lose my hungers for what the world has to offer. And no casino no lottery, no new car dealership, no tour of homes can entice me. There's nothing in the world that can hook me because I've learned a kind of contentment in Christ that satisfies me so deeply. Like Paul, I can be rich or poor. I can be sick or healthy. I can be in plenty. I can be in want. I can show up at true value in my everyday clothes. And Chris still loves me. It doesn't matter. It's, there's an inner fullness that doesn't have to be added to 
by some glamorous possession. That's our deliverance. I know of none other. There is no other. And if we don't have that fullness inside, we'll be sitting ducks for the next enticing offer that comes our way from the world. This will make you happy. This will make you happy. So that's the first thing. This is the will of God, to receive, to believe in the one that he has sent. And then the will of God, secondly, is to do the work that he has called us to do. Oh, this is so wonderful, friends. Christians end up more engaged in the world than anybody. The last thing we want to do is leave this world. We have this life within us. We have this love within us, this fullness within us. We have so much to give that we find ourselves wanting to enter the world and transform it. Wherever we live, whatever we do, we're not running away from the world at all. We become people who care for the earth. We want to see people well. We are people who get into politics for the sake of justice and working together and collaboration. We don't need anything out of it. We just do it because we're so full inside. We're like Jesus. He who believes in me is like a, it's like springs of water will flow from his inner being. It's a wonderful paradox. But the only people who are safe in the world are people who don't need the world, who are free because their needs are deeply satisfied in Christ, and now they have so much to give. They bloom right where they're planted. We call it engaging God's world, where all callings are sacred. doesn't matter what you do. It's a sacred task. And you do it all for his glory and as an expression of love to your fellow man. I think it was Monday when Jeff Stremler rode his trike on our backyard. You know what happened to him. I think it was been about 18 years ago. Now he fell off a horse and he's been badly damaged on his right side all these 18 years. There's not much Jeff can do. He walks with difficulty. He talks with difficulty. And Jeff was having a bad day, and he had to come and look up his old, his old minister. So we went and sat down by the creek in our backyard. Well, he said to me, what, what's the purpose of my life? What do I have to give? I said, Jeff, that's a hard question. You are, you are quite limited in what you can do, aren't you? Yeah. He said, I wash, I, I, I change the water in the ball washers on Homestead Golf Course a couple times a week. I can do that. I said, well, that's a wonderful service. Golf, golfers like to play with a clean ball. And you're, you're doing something important there. This is, this is the will of the Father. You just, you just give what you can because there's something in you that's there. Jesus is in you. You can... You can give something, but he said, I want to do something more. Well, then I thought of, uh, of my friend Nancy Nelson, who 
was hit by a drunk driver on the, bat, on the, on the Hannigan Road a number of years ago. He was largely paralyzed from the neck down, but has full use of it. her faculties. She can see and think and talk. And uh, she has spent time helping slow learners at Fisher School, one of the classrooms. And she has found so much joy in this. She said, it's something I can give, something I can do. I said, Jeff, have you ever thought of maybe seeing if there's a teacher that could use you to help a kid who, who's struggling with a subject in school? No. Well, I said, I know a teacher who teaches in the fifth grade. We could go ask him. Yeah. Well, left the creek in my backyard, and I got on my bike, and he got on his trike, and off we went to Mr. Van Manen's class. And it was lunch hour, and Mr. Van Manen was available, and so we said, Jeff would like to, Jeff is good in math. Uh, he would like to help if you can use a cripple in your classroom. He said, I, I think that's a possibility. Well, I so said, we have to go talk to the principal first. Check this out with the powers that be. So we went to Mr. Bishop, and uh, Jeff sat down and in his halting way said, you know, maybe I could, think I could be used here? Well, Mr. Bishop said, well, think about it. So last week, on two separate occasions, Jeff Stremler rode his trike to Linden Christian Middle School. He went to Mr. Van Manen's class, and he helped a struggling fifth grader with some math. He's doing the will of the Father, and it's giving him more joy than a Porsche. This is how we're delivered. He who does the will of the Father lives forever. This is the promise. This is the deliverance. This is the delight of people who have learned to overcome the world with all of its lusts and all of its pride and all of its empty glory. So friends, let Jesus be your sufficiency and out of that fullness find a place where you can serve and give and love and teach and heal and correct and guide and counsel. This is the life. Amen? Amen. Father, we pray that you would deliver us from the spirit that's in the world that lures us with its offer of life that is ultimately so empty. Fill us with yourself, with a life-giving presence of Jesus. May we find our complete contentment in him. May we receive him afresh in our lives. May we step away from those things that we love that can't love us back, can't even talk. May we find fulfillment in simply obeying the promptings and directions and callings of the Holy Spirit. 
Protect us from being driven people. Help us to become a called people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The affirmation of our faith is the text we had today. And if we could say this together, it's in the bulletin. We believe if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Let's sing uh, the call of Christ, number 591, Jesus Calls Us. Brothers and sisters, to you who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen.